0: So, the latest issue of The Atlantic magazine features an article with the headline, Why Don't I See You Anymore? In it, writer Judith Shulevitz explores the conundrum of how work, in our current era, has eroded a rhythm that once was more common in modern society. A rhythm by which a large percentage of the population, at least, worked during the day, Monday through Friday, We're more free in the evenings and on the weekends to connect with family and friends. However, recent shifts across the socioeconomic spectrum have made this predictable pattern much less the norm. Okay, on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, hourly workers are increasingly being required by their employers to work very fluctuating hours, meaning essentially they need to be ready to work at whatever timeframe the employer and their software algorithms deem optimal with little predictability, little notice. The rise of the gig economy as well, which in theory brings greater flexibility on greater opportunity to make a little money on the side, also disrupts a predictable work-life balance rhythm. And meanwhile, white collar workers higher up on the income ladder with maybe more standard work week practices also are increasingly feeling the pressure to work long hours, be available to check in on work and answer emails and texts around the clock. And then you factor in the realities of urban life, like long commute times, right? And these days, more and more and more of our waking hours are connected often to work, with less and less connected to personal relationships, including even marriage, family. And so spouses are often like ships passing through the night. They talk about in this article how kids often have less time with their parents or when they're with them, they find themselves competing with the demands of the smartphone. And that dinner you've been meaning to schedule with your friends to crying, oh, we need to get together. Like every time you see them in passing, it never gets on the calendar, right? All of these pressures and conflicting schedules make it harder and harder to find time together. And in a sense, none of this would probably come as a surprise to us, right? We're all living it. Perhaps we regularly lament the rise of the cult of busy, but in some sense, maybe we feel powerless to buck the trend and accept, we just accept, this is urban life in 2019, this is what it looks like. What I found really provocative in Shulevitz's article was the link she made between what she sees as this breakdown in familial and social bonds because of our current cultural schedule shift and the vulnerability to tyranny that that breakdown can cause. Okay, she recounts how totalitarian regimes in the past have tried to maintain control over a population by strategically severing their social bonds between family members and other close social groups through demands on their schedule, okay? One experiment in the USSR included requiring family members to work very different schedules so that they would never have time off together. They wouldn't have holidays together. Okay, when they were off, they were off alone. And in the origins of totalitarianism, Hannah Arendt famously wrote, totalitarian movements are mass organizations of atomized, isolated individuals. But as Shulovitz in her article points out, these days we may not actually need a secret police to atomize and isolate us. As she says it this way, I think I have it on the screen, All it takes is for us to stand by, while unbridled capitalism rips apart the temporal preserves that used to let us cultivate the seeds of civil society and nurture the sadly fragile shoots of affection, affinity, and solidarity. This is a light way to start the morning, isn't it? (laughs) Cheery thought. Well, I'm beginning with this sober reference to The Atlantic because I think it highlights the stakes we're talking about when we consider the relevance to our contemporary lives of cultivating community. Why does that really matter? And the idea of cultivating community is really at the heart of, I think, what we are considering in this current teaching series, the series I'm calling "A Home," The Home We're Building Together. If you haven't heard, the premise for this series comes from a question I was musing this summer in a conversation with my husband, Jason. After almost a 20 year journey at this point of praying and working and seminary and all of that towards this invitation I sensed decades ago to imagine that someday we'd start a faith community. I was musing, what if this whole journey was about something way different than I initially understood? What if God sent us here to embark on this Haven project decades ago because God knew back then that someday we were going to need to build ourselves a new home, that it was just that simple, that the spiritual home we had wouldn't be appropriate for the journey of faith we were taking. We were going to need a new home, and so were others who were going to be a part of building this home together. So what does that actually mean, a spiritual home, building a spiritual home? Are we talking about constructing like a physical building we inhabit? Or is it something different? Is it something we actually want? Is it something we really need? And who exactly is supposed to be a part of this home building thing? What are the ways different ones of us interact with the whole project? As we discussed a couple of weeks ago, this metaphor of building a spiritual home has historic precedent precedent I've been investigating more in the context of this series. In our faith tradition, one of the people who thought about building community this way was actually the Apostle Peter. He worked this metaphor in one of his letters that appears in the New Testament. And so as we continue this series, I thought maybe it would make sense to turn to what he had to say about building spiritual home and see if it feels relevant for us. What I think is interesting and pertinent to the crisis of disconnection that Judith Shulevitz was identifying in our day is that Peter also seems to be speaking to an audience of folks who were also challenged with social isolation and displacement, disconnection. The people he spoke to were also disconnected from deep social bonds, and for Peter, An important counter to that challenge, an important means of nurturing the fragile shoots of affection, affinity, and solidarity seemed to be in this project he was calling them to. Now before we take a look at the letter itself, I think maybe it makes sense to consider a bit about who wrote it and what the context for it was. Okay, Peter, if you don't know, we'll just review. He was one of the earliest leaders of the movement of Jesus followers that formed After Jesus' death and resurrection, he was one of the first and most significant leaders of the early church, but he didn't have a religious background, like, like, say, Paul. He'd been a fisherman named Simon by trade until until one fateful day he met Jesus by the lake and Jesus invited him to follow him and learn how to fish for people. It was in following Jesus closely that Simon became Peter. Simon was the first to boldly say that he believed Jesus was God's anointed, the Messiah, God's own son. And while he misunderstood what that meant, he got the core idea right. And Jesus affirmed it, giving him a new name, Petros in Greek, rock, saying that on this rock, Jesus was gonna build his church. After Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter found himself filled with God's spirit and empowered to preach boldly and bring others to know the risen Jesus. And he found himself being led by God to like the home of this Gentile, Cornelius, and baptizing him, which was fundamentally shifting how Peter understood who was to be included in this project of building community. And then he became instrumental in forming new communities of Jesus-centered faith throughout the known world and pastoring them in the decades he had until his eventual martyrdom. So this letter we call 1 Peter was part of that pastoral work. It was written to followers of Jesus, scattered through the four provinces of Asia Minor at the time. So who were the people he was addressing? It's a scholar, John Eliot, who's done some of the most deep work on the historical setting to which this letter was addressed that I've found. And he says that the group Peter's addressing Ethnically, it would have been a mix of Jewish and non-Jewish people, and that they had low social standing in the places they were living, in part because of their heritage, in part because most of them were immigrants, and in part because of their religious convictions. They weren't full citizens of the towns they inhabited. They didn't have the same social rights that, a lot, that most of their neighbors did. Okay? There were legal limitations on who they could marry on uh, who they could engage in commerce with, on whether they could own property. Okay? All of these made them second-class citizens, you could say. Peter uh, uses a few different words to describe his audience, words that we see translated often as exiles, as temporary residents, as foreigners. But I think those terms actually mask what a word that Peter seems to be using intentionally quite literally meant. He speaks to an audience of what he calls, and I have this, I think, on the screen, um, paroikos, paroikos. Okay, what does that mean? It's often translated foreigner, temporary visitor, or alien. But if you take apart what the two two parts of the word mean, you get really a sense of what it says. Oikos in Greek is the word for home. Okay, we're getting nerdy here. If you like to take notes, you can start filling in blanks. I'm just going to be honest. We're kind of like going into deep textual work today, all right? Kind of taking you to seminary with me. So so we're going to look at some Greek. Oikos in Greek is the word for home. And para basically means without, against, other than. In this context, without a home is really who he's calling them to be. The group of this Jesus followers he says they are without a home. This doesn't mean that these followers have like no literal shelter over their heads. But Peter seems to understand them to be a people who because of their social condition are in a real sense homeless. And here's what he has to say to them. Let's turn now to 1 Peter 2, starting with verse 4. And Again, if you want to, you, you can follow along on the sheets that are around or on the screen. As you come to him, the living stone... Rejected by humans, come to him Jesus, the living stone. Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to stop there for now just to comment on this fundamental claim Peter is making. We'll go forward in a little bit. But just to focus on this fundamental claim that's being made, Peter is saying to a group of folks he perceives and has addressed them to be paraoicas without a home, that God is building each of them into an, what he calls an oikas pneumaticas. All right, I think we have this too. Oikas pneumaticas. You have that slide? Uh, no. Coming forward. There we go. Oikas pneumaticas a spiritual home. Okay, he's saying you who have no you who have no home, oikas, paroikas are going to be part of a oikas pneumatica, spiritual home. He's describing this phenomenon in which as these folks come to Jesus, they are brought into a house in a spiritual sense, in a home. But it's not that they're just like finding a place to live there. The homeless are not simply finding a place to inhabit. Peter's saying they're being brought in as the stones themselves that form the floors and walls and roof of this place that Peter's calling the spiritual home. The home he's describing is essentially built out of these homeless people. Does that make sense? Peter tells his audience they are to be living stones. What does he mean? Perhaps the idea of these followers of Jesus becoming stones is in part inspired by Peter's own name, right? Remember, it's Jesus who initially told Simon Peter he is rock on which the church would be built. But interestingly, this word, which we translate as stone, has a bit of a different connotation than Peter's name, okay? So again, we're gonna get kinda nerdy here. He's not calling, I have the, these two different Greek words. One is Petras, that's Peter's name which literally is often translated rock. It really means kind of the rocky formation in the earth, like a natural rock. Does that make sense? And then you've got lithos, okay? That's the word Peter is using here of them, okay? And these are stones, these are cut stones, right? When you build a building in the ancient world, you had a stone cutter go and cut stones to be particular shapes. They have been formed, right? They've been cut carefully, trimmed to be a certain, to fulfill a certain function in the architecture. Does that make sense? It's as if Peter's saying to them that just as Jesus, the human embodiment of God's own self, right, was particularly formed to function in a significant way in this movement of people that Jesus came to initiate, so too each of the people who were coming to Jesus in participating in this ongoing work, they also were particularly formed to function in the creation of this movement, which would be a spiritual home for themselves and others. Do you get that? Does that make sense? That each had been and were being formed in a unique way as living stones, each stone being custom cut, okay? They're not just rocks you know, that you pick up. They have been custom cut. They have been shaped. But these stones weren't intended to remain isolated, just a collection of rocks each on their own, a collection of stones each by themselves. No, they were intended to be brought together, to be arranged with care, and to collaboratively participate in creating something beyond any of them, something in which the spirit of God would be palpable. I don't know about you, but I find this to be a stirring idea for our own home building conversation. I think it's interesting, frankly, this is a bit of an aside, but I do think it's interesting. I've been thinking about this week that five years ago, in the very earliest days of this project that would become this, a group of like half a dozen of us gathered in the living room of my then Berkeley apartment and we thought about and prayed about what this little community, which we were calling at the time just baby church, um, what this community would be named. And I actually went through the thread of emails from back in 2014 to try to figure out what were some of those names we were, to- we were tossing out. So there was Thrive. There was Flourish. Even Feast. <laughs> kind of weird, right, to think about now. Those were all <laughs> like top contenders for what we were going to call this project, this baby church. But ultimately, as we debated back and forth over a few weeks, the name that seemed to resonate the most was a name that actually employed a similar metaphor, I think, to what Peter is bringing up here. Haven, our very name speaks to this idea that we long to be a safe place, to protect, to heal, a shelter, right? A haven is a safe harbor that shields people from the storms, right? That's kind of the origin of it. It's a shelter. It's a spiritual home. So, what exactly is in the spiritual home? Peter reminds us it's not really a building that people simply inhabit. The haven isn't Washington Elementary, right? That's not the haven. It's not some multi million dollar property that maybe someday we will acquire, you know, in Berkeley. It, that's not the haven. If that place ever exists, right? No. The haven is us you and you and you and. All the kids and the youth and the folks who aren't here today, and me, we're the haven. We are the specially formed stones cut with intention, shaped by the hands of nature and nurture to produce each of us uniquely, right? And somehow Jesus is intentionally bringing us together and arranging us with all of our unique formations to build something new, a place where we become more than stones, We find a place to live and serve and worship, as Peter says, offering spiritual sacrifices in this home. So after making this core point that each of his listeners was invited to see themselves as a lithos, just like Jesus, being built into the oikas pneumaticas, the spiritual home, Peter went on in his letter to explain more how this worked. And this gets a little dense, just... Stay with me, okay? So here's where he goes to kind of explain how this is all, what this all means. and picking it up in verse 6. For in scripture, it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone but now you have received mercy. So here we see Peter reaching back into his Jewish tradition to help his audience have a bigger understanding of what it means to be a stone in the home, okay? How Jesus functions as a lithos, what that might mean for each of them, and he does that by reaching for three different passages in the Hebrew Bible to do this. So that's why it's going to get a little... We got to kind of look at each one and then figure out why they're tied together, okay? Because he's not just quoting one place with all three verses. These are three different scriptures he's bringing together here, okay? The oldest was probably Psalm 118. It's the writer of Psalm 118 who first used these words to describe the activity of God in his or her own life, naming, in the context is naming how many people and painful circumstances had come against this poet And in an effort to stop the psalmist from living into God's best for them, the writer of Psalm 118 says this. I'll give you a little bit more of the context here, starting with verse 17. I will not die, but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but not given me over to death. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So the psalmist is saying, I, I am like a stone, a lithos, that a group of home builders saw no purpose for. They didn't like the way I was formed. They saw no use for me. But God included me. And not only did God include me, but God saw a special purpose for me. God made me a cornerstone. What's that about? A lot of us have probably heard the verse. Maybe we've gone and drank at the bar. Cornerstone, I I highly recommend it. It's a good place. Um, We may hear this quoted a lot in church, right? Oh, he's the precious cornerstone. What's the significance of that? In ancient architecture, the cornerstone was the first stone you laid, right? And around that, the rest of the building had to be composed. The alignment of the whole building rested on that first stone. Okay, so the psalmist believes that he's had a lot of hardship, or she. But through it all, what God this is what God has done with him or her. Though He or she was rejected, God is now building something new around what once was rejected. Psalm 118. Generations later, Jesus, who knew his psalms, understood himself to be in the same tradition. He saw the anger. In the eyes of the religious leaders of his day, he knew that they thought he did not belong in the faith they were championing, championing, as he challenged their narrow scriptural interpretations and the ways they used them to control others and keep others from experiencing the life that was meant to come in spiritual community. He understood that groups often unfairly project their group anxiety onto an innocent other often an other that provides a challenge to the people of power in the group. Anxious groups often become mobs, mobs that target a scapegoat and expel it. Jesus could see the forces aligning against him in this way, and so he quoted the psalmist of himself speaking against the teachers of the law in his day. I, too, am the rejected stone that will become a cornerstone, he was saying. I think as they reached for this quote, both Jesus in his time and Peter here, they were rooting themselves in this tradition and showing, Peter, showing his listeners how Jesus' life exemplifies this work that God has been doing and continues to do of reclaiming the rejected. This is an important thread here, he's saying, God is the one who reclaims rejected stones. God reclaims the rejected, all right? So that's one thread. But that's not the only quote in the passage, right? He also takes these words um, and he pairs them with a couple of different passages written by the prophet Isaiah. Passages that weren't about rejection, but they were more about God's intentional plan, God's intentions. Early in his writings, Isaiah was prophesying about the corruption that he saw in both the religious and political leaders of his day. And in that context, he was talking about the way that God intended to reveal the injustice that was present around them. And that is where we get Isaiah 8, which is one of the next quotes, okay? In Isaiah 8, the prophet here, hears God saying this. I'm going to start you with verse... Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone, here it comes, that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare, and many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Now, this might feel like, what is this about? I read this verse that Peter quoted, with all that context, because I think out of the context, it's even easier to miss the big picture that he's making, the bigger point he's making. We can read this bit about like a stone that causes people to stumble and think like, yikes, that's kind of harsh. I'm not sure I like that, that doesn't feel cool. It sounds like God is like this punitive being trying to trap people, right? What's that about? But make no mistake, what Isaiah is saying in his day is really relevant in ours too, friends. Okay, Because in the context of an unjust society where there is corrupt leadership at the top, where the rulers lie regularly about what the real concerns are in order to gin up fear in their people so that they can control them and protect themselves. You're with me? Can you even imagine such a scenario? Right? In the context of such a society in which Isaiah was living and which I think we might be, It is good news to hear that God sees what's really going on. Amen? And it is good news to hear that God intends not to give those leaders a pass and an easy way forward as they succeed by just, like, running over everyone. It is God's intention for the truth to come out, for sooner or later that unjust leader's path, that scapegoater's path, to be obstructed, and that something inevitably will come up. A stubborn stone will appear that the unjust will trip on, and the truth of their injustice will be revealed to everyone. You understand me? That's the word. That's what he's talking about. Okay? The Greek word Isaiah uses here for this stumbling block is scandalon. That's the word, scandalon. And it's the origin of our word scandal. Right? God will not let the hypocritical and unjust remain unchecked. God will allow the scandal to take them down. That is the word here. Interesting, right? You can pray for that if you if you if you care to. <laughs> Just a freebie. Just put it out there. <laughs> There's one other passage here that Peter references, and this is in later in Isaiah. Same prophet. Later part of the book. Chapter 28, the prophet says this, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. So again, we have this building metaphor once again. But in this message, there's nothing about rejection. There's nothing about stumbling. It's simply describing God to be a wise builder, making intentional choices considered from the beginning, an architect laying a precious cornerstone and orienting the building that he or she, the divine, is building around it with justice and righteousness. A home where the ones who inhabit it will never be stricken with panic. I love that, right? So do you see how Peter is bringing these three threads together, okay? He's bringing together these three things. There's the tradition of the rejected stone that's being repurposed. And he's saying that, that is the precious cornerstone that anchors the home built with justice and righteousness. You see that? And he's also saying that same stone has within itself the power to be the scandalizer. to scandalize corrupt leadership, to reveal unjust rulers. Okay, you with me? In all of this, Peter's reminding his listeners about this core element of Jesus's identity. Jesus, he says, is the one who, though he was the embodiment of God's own self, was misunderstood, marginalized, rejected, displaced, made to be paroicus, without a home, even through humiliation, unfair character, assassination, ultimately a violent death. And yet, that was not the final word for Jesus. His rejection was repurposed, reclaimed, so that God's intentional plans for justice and equity could be enacted. And as he does all this, Peter is drawing, I think, also, it's, it's lovely, a powerful contrast between the rejection of humans and the intentional choices of the divine. Three times in our first Peter passage, when you look at the whole thing, do we see a contrast in the words between being rejected and being chosen. He starts out right by describing the living stone rejected by humans, chosen by God. He uses these quotes again and again to make the same point, and then he ends by saying, now this isn't just Jesus's story, this is your story too. Just like he was rejected, but chosen by the divine, you parochus, you too are being chosen, not to be rejected, not to be homeless, but to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, etc., etc." Now, you know, I've heard a lot of Christians quote that little passage, right? you are a holy priesthood, a holy nation, blah, 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 royal priesthood, and you can get a little, like, you know, we're God's special possession, we're the chosen. It's like the self-affirmation mantra, right? Taken out of context, it feels kind of gross to me. Pretty elitist. Is that really what we're supposed to be drawing from this? Uh, but when I see it in the context of the whole passage, It doesn't feel that way to me I don't hear Peter saying you're the special ones everyone else isn't you got it right good job I don't hear him doing that I hear him saying people told you you didn't belong just like Jesus you've been made to feel rejected you've been cast off you have been worthless you have been told you are worthless maybe you have even been the one to disqualify yourself to reject yourself for mistakes you may have made. On the night Jesus was betrayed, let's remember, as he was experiencing the hell of his rejection, Peter turned his back on him. This same Peter turned his back on him, denying Jesus three times. That was a mistake. It's understandable. But it undid him. Afterwards, he was gutted filled with shame, probably believed he was unworthy of any more inclusion in whatever else God might do. But that wasn't the end of the story for Peter, just like it wasn't the end for Jesus, because God chooses what others reject. Amen? Even when we reject ourselves, God chooses what others reject. That is what this whole thing is about. God chooses what others reject. When we are scapegoated, God chooses us. When we fail to live into our own values, God chooses us. When we disqualify ourselves, God chooses us. And with those chosen stones, which all of us are, God intends to build homes for the homeless. Homes with justice as the measuring line, and righteousness as the plumb line. So what does all this mean for, for our little haven? What does this really have to do with us? I want to end with just a few invitations that I think might be offered to us in this as we think about this home we're building together. First, I want to invite you to consider how you have been uniquely formed and what the stone is that you've become as a result. How have you been uniquely formed? What is the stone that you've become as a result? Jesus was formed in part by his rejection. That is true. He was certainly formed in part by being expelled even brutally killed by the very people he came to serve. But that wasn't the only thing that formed Jesus as a living stone, right? Jesus was formed by so much more. He was formed with this crazy, miraculous birth story, first of all, attended by like shepherds and angels. That has to leave a mark in some way, right? He's formed as he's presented at the temple. And the elderly Simeon and Anna prophesy over him about his unique identity. Maybe he doesn't remember those things as an adult, but surely they were told to him by his parents, right? He's formed as a 12-year-old debating Torah in the temple with his rabbis. He's formed in his young adulthood as a carpenter, a peasant, a tradesman, living simply, practicing faith, learning how to literally build things with his own hands. Kind of interesting that that's the metaphor that keeps coming up when Jesus was actually a physical builder, right? And then, of course, he's formed as he's baptized, sees the spirit descend on him like a dove, hears the words of the divine, call him a precious son. He's formed he's tempted in the wilderness, as he preaches with authority, as he heals the sick, as he begins to call fishermen like Peter to follow him, as he casts out demons and turns water into wine. And yes, he was formed when he walked the ultimate walk of solidarity with all of history's marginalized, walking the lonely road to the cross. And he was formed as he rose again. All of this was part of Jesus's forming. All of it made him the living stone that could be built upon that could be the cornerstone. At our recent retreat, we did a community brainstorming discernment exercise where we allowed all who were there to express their ideas about what this home we're building at Haven is supposed to be. And one of the things I thought was most powerful that someone put up on the board was to move past trauma bonding into being the community we want to see. I think that feels very true. The reality is a lot of our stories have had some trauma. Let's be honest, that's part of what has brought many of us into this room. And when that's the case, it becomes natural to connect with others who've had similar experiences, who who get that. But we have to remember our trauma is not all of who we are. Amen? Our trauma is not all of who we are. It is true. Our hardships, the traumatic things in our life, have certainly been a part of our forming. But just to be clear, I'm not at all saying that God has intentionally let those traumatic things happen to us to make us into something. Do not hear me say that. The reality is life is traumatic on its own. Life is is traumatic. Sooner or later life is going to knock you down, whatever your story is, but God seems to have a way of using all the things that form us, including the hard parts, including the traumatic parts, to help us become something more, something beautiful, a living stone. So what's in your stone? How has your story, the good, hard, all of it together? How has that made you who you are? What gifts, what special concerns, what facets are in your stone as a result of all that has been formed in you? That question brings me to the second thing I invite you to be considering in this season. Remember, Peter calls these building blocks living stones. To me, that says these stones aren't stagnant. They're not fixed. They're They're alive, they're evolving. They're still being formed. The formation isn't done. So as we build, we need not only a home in which each stone belongs, but we need a home in which each stone can continue forming, being formed. So I invite you to consider what is still being formed in yourself and what is yet to be formed in you. You aren't done yet. I'm not done yet, as long as we have breath in us, we have a journey more towards the divine to take. If we call ourselves Jesus followers, and here's something to consider. If we're saying we're Jesus followers, that must mean Jesus is still moving. He's still on the move, at work, breaking chains of injustice, revealing the scandals of the unjust leaders, reclaiming the rejected. And as long as Jesus is doing these things, there's always more for us to learn, more for us to grow in, more for us to practice as we try to keep up with the one whom we say we follow. So my hope and sincere prayer is that this community will continue to be a place where all of us are being formed continuously where we have room and teachings and classes and discussion groups and justice actions and service with our partner organizations in our prayer times in our worship and in so much more to allow our stones to live and continue to look more like the cornerstone we're building in and finally I believe there's an invitation for each of us to find our place in the building. An invitation for you to find your place in the building. We're not supposed to be a collection of random isolated stones, right? It's back to where we started this morning. We all need connection. Despite the challenges of schedule and location, the varying demands on our time, we need to find creative ways to gather with others because we still all need connection. We all need love, real, embodied, present without judgment, courageous in the face of the trials we all face, kind of love. And the only way we get there is together. And so I invite you to let this spirit, who I believe is building among us, be speaking to you about what it means for your stone to live in this home. Where is the divine placing you in her grand architectural plan for this haven? What specific stones might be on your right, on your left? Where might you lean in relationally to bring your unique formation? alongside the formation of others to build something that is formed by all this beauty in unity. And I believe that as we do that, as we bring our full selves to this project and we look around at the treasures in others' true, authentic full selves coming forward, when we see how precious these chosen stones we get to live with really are, the one we are building on, will be most powerfully evident, and we will all be home. Amen.